0: All right.
1: All right. Here we go. You guys ready? Sounds great. Cool.
0: There There she
1: is. Hey, Marillion.
2: Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you?
1: So good. Thanks for joining us today on the Bug Bites podcast. We're really happy that you could do it.
2: I am so honored.
1: (laughs) Most people do not consider this an honor, Marillion. We're flattered that you would say such a nice thing. <laughs> well, uh, Marillion, thanks again. Really, uh, we do appreciate you joining us. We know that um, you know your time is really valuable. And Mike and Brittany and I all feel like we know you really well being on the NPMA executive committee and being involved with NPMA for so many years. But we were hoping that we might be able to start off with you just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, introducing yourself and, and your company. Because I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more about it.
2: Absolutely, thank you so much. Um, yes, Bono Pest Control. I am second generation. My dad started the company back in 1978, and uh, he worked for a another pest control company in the 70s. And he wasn't getting promoted. You know, he was a really good problem solver and root guy, and on the road. And, um, he decided to, you know, go on his own over the weekend. He specialized in, uh, sensitive care areas, hospitals, and that kind of took him on his way. And, and that's the niche that we still have today is those type of accounts and clientele, which, you know, we're really proud of. Um, and I can tell you a quick story in a little bit, but. Um, I didn't get into the business, whether I liked bugs or I didn't like bugs, I always say. It's pretty much the um, business opportunity that I saw and the fact that I was on the road and just meeting different people. I just, I, I knew I couldn't get it any place else. And um, once I had the confidence, then controlling the, the insects and the pests kind of came after that, you know, but um, no regrets. <laughs> I'm glad I uh, stayed with it and uh, learned so much, of course, over the years and how much the industry has grown and how positive it is now. You know, you're turning negative situations into positive situations for people. And it's not the uh, what people perceive to be on the outside, you know, looking in. It's not the exterminator anymore, but more of um, a professional industry. So it's something that I am proud of. The fact too, that um, we do, you know, of course, go out to commercial and residential accounts, but we did partner up with um, a intervention trial about 10 years ago. And this was the um, mouse, allergen and asthma intervention trial. And it was headed by a doctor at Boston Children's Hospital. And what it was, it was a study of inner city children that had asthma. And we would go in to these homes where they lived and eliminated the mice. And then the children's hospital staff would go in and change the filters, the air filters and educate families on IPM and and sanitation. And it was a five-year intervention trial. And so once that was completed, we were able to go into the schools of where these kids were going to school and actually into the classrooms and do the same thing and eliminate the mice and change the filters. And uh, the study you know, was approximately 10 years in the running. So that's something that is kind of like outside the box, but we're so uh, proud to be a part of and the results that you see you know, from our industry doing something that's a part of that can be such a long-term and you can see the results right to the children, it's priceless.
1: Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that you know, sometimes the outside world looking into the pest management industry doesn't, doesn't even recognize the professionalism, the benefit to society, The you know, what we always tout as the you know, protectors of public health. There it is, right there. And I'm glad you mentioned that that research was um, done in conjunction with uh, Boston University, right? Uh, um, because otherwise, we would never have known from your 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 accent that you were from New England at all. We would have assumed maybe you were from the South, like Brittany. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, my accent—you can't tell at all where I'm from. <laughs> I know. I really try to control it, but
2: then when I'm comfortable, it just it it just goes. <laughs> no, no, no! no. Yes. Don't
0: control it at all. You let that Boston accent fly. <laughs>
3: I hear you, and, and I go home for a week to Georgia and I come back and no one can understand me. <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, that's awesome. Thanks. You know, so um, it, it's great to hear the stories and we love to hear, you know, the, the background from, you know, uh, our different guests each week. And, uh, and but I guess we ought to just jump into it. So, Mike, do you want to uh, uh, set the rules of engagement here?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Merlian, you, you, know, you started off by saying that you were honored to be here. Hopefully, after we subject you to this, uh, you still feel the same way at the end of this uh, recording as you did in the very beginning. But, um, So, just a quick rundown of, of what we're going to do here. So, each of us are going to take about five minutes to cover our favorite discovery. Um, most of it will probably impact the pest management industry in some way. But these are all going to be discoveries that we found through publications or science news media over the last month. And we're going to take about five minutes to cover those. We're pretty competitive as a team internally. So to keep things interesting, we're going to be complete competing to see who does the best job at uh, covering that news article. Now that's where you come in. You are the official judge um, in determining who is going to be the crowned, the nerdiest of the three of us for this episode. So now, what that means and how that's determined is completely up to you. You get to define what those parameters are in any personal way that you see fit to determine which one of us does the best job. Now, I will tell you um, that uh, at any point in time, if you have any questions for us on the articles that we cover, the way that we explain things, you know, after we get through our explanation, please feel free to uh, ask us any questions, rip us apart, do whatever you need to do to make sure that you feel comfortable in our explanation. I do want to preface all of this by saying that, um, Jim is our previous winner. So as a, as a, uh, uh, kind of, no, I don't want to say a punishment, but so he has to go first this round. Now, um, I have the dubious honor of yeah, being yeah, first. Exactly. Now the last, uh, the, the last two times, whoever has gone last has won this event. Um, so I am gonna be going second because I won first. Brittany is the only uh, presenter so far that has not won yet. Now- Was it
3: necessary to say that, Mike?
0: Every chance I get, it is necessary to remind me. <laughs> I am
3: of. in it to win it today.
0: Yeah, so Marillion, that should not affect your judgment okay. at all.
2: Absolutely not.
0: Okay, just <laughs> making sure that I've established that ground rules. Um, so uh, Merilyn, do you have any questions before we get started? I'm ready.
1: All right.
0: Here we go. All right, Jim, the floor is all yours, buddy.
1: All right. Thank you, Mike and Brittany and Marillion. The, um, the research uh, paper that I want to talk a little bit about this week is titled Use of Rodenticide Bait Stations by Commensal Rodents at the Urban Wildland Interface, Insights for Management to Reduce Non-Target Exposure. Uh, so, Murley, and this research was funded by the Pest Management Foundation, uh, a grant that was made to Dr. Neve Quinn and her research program at the University of California uh, Agricultural Natural Sciences in Irvine, California. Uh, for our listeners who don't know, the foundation is an independent nonprofit charity that provides scholarships for outstanding urban entomology students, and fund structural pest control research at universities all across the United States. All of the foundation's work is made possible by donations from pest control companies and people just like our listeners. Uh, This topic is especially timely because of the recent focus of some anti-pesticide groups um, that they've placed on pest management professionals regarding non-target wildlife exposure to anticoagulant rodenticides especially California mountain lions, birds of prey in New England, and most recently bobcat populations on Kiowa Island in South Carolina. Now the knee jerk reaction by many of the activist groups has been to ban the use of these rodenticides based on residue data that may or may not show sublethal amounts of anticoagulants in these non-target animals. in California, a measure was recently passed just last year to ban most second-generation anticoagulant uses, even by licensed um, professionals across the entire state. Now, our industry contends that outright bans like this don't take into consideration the important beneficial role that rodenticides play in managing these important public health pests. and And instead of banning the products altogether, we believe it's important to first understand how non-targets are becoming exposed and then try to limit the exposures uh, through common sense risk management, right? Um, And so although it's not known exactly how these exposures are occurring, um, it's thought that native rodents like in California, deer, mice, wood rats, kangaroo rats, ground squirrels are entering bait stations consuming bait and then um, raptors or coyotes or pumas or other non-target predators are eating the non-pest native rodents. So to better understand uh, which of these native rodents are entering the bait stations, Dr. Quinn and her colleagues um, did this. They positioned two bait stations in each of more than 90 backyards across Southern California. One bait station was placed on the ground and one bait station was positioned between three and five feet off the ground. Um, Non-target commercial bait was placed inside the stations. And then digital cameras were focused on the two bait stations. And every animal that interacted or entered a bait station was photographed. Um, As a result, more than half a million photographs were captured of these animals moving in and out. And this is what Dr. Quinn and her colleagues learned. Um, First, they learned that roof rats were present at more than 80% of the sites. Uh, House mice and Norway rats were observed occasionally, but much less commonly. The native rodents um, like deer mice, wood rats, kangaroo rats, and ground squirrels were relatively rare visiting or entering the bait stations. Um, Only 13% of the sites had these, Um, but they did note that native rodents were five times less likely to enter stations that were positioned up off the ground. Roof rats, on the other hand, which is the target pest here, um, were equally likely to find, enter, and interact with the bait stations whether they were on the ground or up in the air. Um, So the authors made some very specific recommendations to pest management professionals as a result. Um, They said that one, PMPs should monitor bait consumption closely during the first few weeks uh, to ensure that adequate bait is available to control populations so that we don't have um, partially dosed rodents kind of running around um, available for these predators. Two, um, on average, it took the roof rats between seven and eight days to enter a station. And we know that second gen anticoagulants typically take three to five days to work. So the control effects that a customer perceives might not be seen for as long as two weeks after application. So this should be communicated to clients up front so that their expectations can be managed. Third, in areas where predator species like coyotes or foxes are common, that is homes that are close to natural areas, care should be taken to clean up any rat carcasses that are found that are out in the open. And then lastly, when roof rats are the target pest, which is the case in most of California and many of the warmer coastal regions, positioning bait stations three to five feet off the ground can actually limit non-target entry into the stations. So if our listeners are interested in finding out more about the research that the Pest Management Foundation funds or make a donation, they can visit npmafoundation.org. And that's it. Jim, I think the gravity of what and got herself into
0: set in. As you were reading the title of your paper, I was watching the smile melt from her face. And by the time you got to paragraph three of the title... So I could tell that she's like, "What have I gotten <laughs> no, myself into?" No. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a quick in and
2: out. No, 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 I did. I did like it because we were just talking about the whole trial and study and so forth on on rodents. So I think that was a great segue, Jim. I feel like California and Massachusetts are paired together. You know, I think they both have the long the longest list of restricted use pesticides. I feel like they're on the same wing. On a lot of uh, issues yeah. and so forth. So, and that when did that come out? When was that study finished?
1: It is just it's just it's just published now. So wow. um, the study wrapped up um, last year, but the time between the you know the research being you know funded, the research getting started, right. the research getting done, getting written up, and then actually published in a scientific journal, there's a lag time, um, and so we've received yeah. our report from the doctor. Um, uh, <clears throat> When for the Pest Management Foundation, a year, a year ago probably,
3: oh, okay.
2: uh, but this is
1: the official publication. So um, excellent. Um, now the word's getting out to the larger research public, and but but the beautiful thing about this is that it gave some very specific um, recommendations. I think. And uh, and that's one of the prerequisites for the foundation when it looks to fund research is to find research that is applicable, you know, that it can be used, not just science for science. It's something that PCOs can use.
2: Absolutely. That's excellent.
1: Good. Well, good news is you didn't fall asleep while I was talking. I appreciate that.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Jim, I feel like that was sneaky. She's on your board. She's in Massachusetts, like face it or Boston, face the stuff you that's insider info right there
0: merlin I, I want you to listen to the bitterness in britney's tone right now she's very concerned that there's some insider dealings going on that could affect her ability to win this competition today so take note of that bitterness should count against you nope
2: that's okay britney <laughs> that's <laughs> okay bitter
3: because yeah i have to say jim did an excellent job yeah, I, that was a very good overview
1: dr campbell that's awfully nice (laughs) she's got something up her sleeve today mike i know i i'm very
0: (laughs) uneasy about what she's got prepared today all right well merlin do you have any other questions for jim before i don't i don't okay all right well um we'll go ahead and transition into my paper now and uh Mine is not directly as applicable to the pest control industry as Jim's was, but it's uh, heavily founded in public health uh, and uh, interests. So it's still topically relevant from a public health perspective. So uh, no no, uh, heckling me here, Jim. But um, uh, this paper was published in the Journal of Medical Entomology uh, just a few weeks ago. It was conducted by a team of 11 researchers, so it was a whole team of researchers, but the official title of the paper is Susceptibility of Midge and Mosquito Vectors to SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that we're all familiar with nowadays that causes the COVID-19 illness, and it needs no introduction. Uh, Basically, it's the source of all things pandemic-related for the last year. Um, In order to stop the spread of this or any deadly virus, we always strive to better understand how the virus itself is spread. At this stage, we understand that the primary mode of transmission for SARS-CoV-2 is via the respiratory route. Essentially, people can contract it or spread it by breathing it in, hence the urgency for wearing masks. However, SARS-CoV-2 viral RNA has been identified in the blood and serum of infected patients, suggesting that the virus itself may be present in the bloodstream of infected humans. So this led to the concern that hematophagus, or blood-sucking insects, could potentially be susceptible to picking up and spreading SARS-CoV-2. So there's logic in this theory considering the high number of pathogens that arthropods are already known to transmit to humans through biological mechanical transmission. So they can pick it up while they're feeding on us and spread it through infected saliva, or maybe through mechanical transmission, they pick up a bacteria or a pathogen and they spread it through picking it up and physically transferring it to us. There was a recent study that was done in 2020 that showed one of many studies that showed that the virus is not able to replicate in a number of commonly encountered mosquito spe- species in residential communities, that being Aedes aegypti and Aedes apopictus, which are the, both the species that we know to be common vectors of the Zika virus here in the US, as well as Culex quinquefasciatus, which is just another commonly encountered Culex mosquito species in urban environments. The paper that I'm going to cover right now uh, continued that work by investigating the susceptibility of two additional Culex mosquito species and also looked at a biting midge, which some people may know them as noceums, they are really small, really hard to see biting insects. They had two goals in this study. The first one was to see if the virus itself could replicate within the cells of the arthropods. And the second was to see if the virus could be, uh, the arthropods, the mosquitoes and midges could become infected after oral ingestion, essentially like if they were to feed on an infected host. So to to test the viral replication at the cellular level, they inoculated cultured cells from the arthropods with SARS-CoV-2. And then to test for viability of infectious virus via oral ingestion, they fed the hungry mosquitoes and arthropods on infected blood and let them hang out for about 10 days to let the virus do its thing inside the body. What they found was that none of the cells from the cultured lines for the Culex mosquitoes or the biting midges could support SARS-CoV-2 replication. So good news there. And second, they found that they did see that SARS-CoV-2 viral RNA would remain in infected arthropods for up to 10 days. So it was potential that potentially recoverable, but none of the infectious virus was recovered from any of the RNA positive arthropods. So in any case where they found that mosquitoes or the biting midges, would, uh, they could find trace levels of the RNA in them after 10 days that the RNA was not infectious or the, I'm sorry, the virus was no longer infectious. So the conclusion of this study was that much like previous similar studies, the arthropods in this research likely do not play a transmission of, of an important role in the transmission of SARS-CoV-2, um, or SARS-CoV-2, I'm sorry. And it's important to, to, to point out here that these conclusions aren't necessarily surprising. What most people often overlook, especially if they're not aware of this, is there's this incredible degree of complexity to the disease transmission cycle for arthropods. Um, you know we just assume that if something you know drinks our blood and it gets us sick, then it's probably able to pick up a bunch of other pathogens that can also make us sick. A great example of the complexity and specificity of this is with malaria. So malaria is a parasite that's spread by a single, genus of mosquito, the Anopheles mosquito. It's the world's deadliest arthropod-borne disease. It's the most successfully transmitted disease basically on earth by arthropods. And here's how specific this specific disease is. It's only factored by one specific genus of mosquitoes. A mosquito has to feed on an infected host long enough to ingest a specific life stage of the malaria parasite. They then have to survive long enough for that malaria parasite to undergo four different developmental changes and travel through the internal system of the mosquito, multiple internal systems, before finally landing in the salivary glands. From there, the mosquito then has to live long enough again to find another host and inject infected saliva into the host. Then from there, the malaria parasite has to go undergo an additional seven developmental stages in different organs, internal and systems, internal systems in the human host before finally being ready to find its way back to another specific Anopheles mosquito. Any other mosquito picks the parasite up and the transmission cycle ends. Um, Mosquitoes usually last around a week, maybe a little bit longer in the wild. So it's highly unlikely that most mosquitoes would even survive long enough for that. So it makes sense that we're not finding a lot of arthropods that are capable of vectoring COVID-19. That's it.
2: Thank God. I was very nervous when you first right? started. I was like, oh boy, where's it going? <laughs> something new.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it, yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I wanted to cover this. I mean, it's something that's, it's constantly in the back of our minds. We're all concerned about it. I mean, You never know when something could potentially pop up, but the evolution of these parasites or these pathogens with the host that's capable of transmitting them or the way in which they're transmitted is oftentimes so incredibly specific. Right. It's highly unlikely that something is going to accidentally be able to have all of the tools necessary to become a competent vector. So, I mean, if something so, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is incredibly successful at being spread through respiratory systems. Well, that's not how mosquitoes spread disease to us. Right. It's through salivary glands and infected uh, serum, blood serum and things like that. So,
2: Fascinating.
1: Brilliant. Questions from Michael?
2: No, just the fact that, um, it's kind of a metaphor of, you know, if you don't know the entomology background, the behavior and the biology, and you just read things in the news as a, just a typical consumer. And then once you do hear this, you know, it just puts everything into perspective and makes sense. Common sense. You know, once you learn the biology, um, of the insect, you know, um, that was extremely good news, good research, and I'm glad it turned out the way it did. <laughs> but I don't have any questions.
1: I have a question for Dr. Bentley. So um, I just wanna make sure I heard you right. So um, um, the viral RNA um, was recovered in arthropod, in these arthropods um, for a time period after, um, after they were infected, right? Correct? But, mm-hmm. it, but, it was not infectious meaning that. It yep. would, okay. So that's good <laughs> yes. because this is what I'm thinking as you're, you know, I'm, I'm less concerned about, you know, mosquito biting me and all this. I was thinking, you imagine Meridian, like you're riding your bike on down a trail and every once in a while you come through this like swarm of bugs and they're like stuck in your teeth, stuck in your hair, and you suck them in, you breathe them in. Right. And I'm thinking, like, what if I breathe one of these these mosquitoes or one of these noceums in? Like, now I'm inhaling this 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 uh, this RNA, uh, but not infectious, so we're good. You can just breathe away. Right. That's a great point, point. and you know, I got I went
0: off on this malaria tangent, um, w- but yeah, they they did actually uh, they identified that as a limitation of this study. That um, so oftentimes, brilliant. When researchers publish their findings, they'll talk about all the things that they identified or showed or or confirmed, Um, but they a lot of times wrap up by identifying limitations of their study, essentially poking holes in their own research to show where they may have failed to address certain things. Um, And in this study, they did that. They identified that they didn't evaluate the potential for mechanical transmission, uh, but they cited that previous reports have shown that SARS-CoV-2 RNA was detected in very, very low levels. and that uh, the efficacy of mechanical transmission is often dose dependent. So it is highly unlikely that mechanical transmission would even be viable in this case. So mechanical transmission really would be like, like like Jim said, eating a mosquito or squishing a mosquito into an open wound or something like that, that it's that even if it's not infectious, the load would be so incredibly low that it's highly unlikely. That's
1: good. That's good news too.
3: All right. Good job, Dr. Fredericks. Dr. Bentley, are we ready for the, the best one? <coughs> <laughs> so I'm taking it back to my insect roots today, Marillion, and I'm going to be talking about my true loves in the pest management world. We're going to be talking about bed bugs. And I chose a practical paper, and I better get my timer going here so I don't talk for too long. So we're gonna be talking about treatment and applications. The title of my paper is the evaluation of a non-chemical compared to a non-chemical plus silica gel approach to bed bug management. So this paper was published in July of 2020. So pretty new and by some researchers out of Rutgers, their entomology department. So in this paper, Basically what they did is they compared two different treatment programs for bed bugs in high-rise apartment buildings. Uh, They chose three different high-rise buildings in Jersey. Two were managed by a private company and one by public housing authority. Uh, However, all three apartments had been dealing with bed bug infestations, had a history of bed bug infestations for over seven years. And of course there was a combination of resident self-treating in one facility, it was the housing staff doing bed bug treatments and occasionally they did contract with professionals. So the researchers, why I really like this study is because I think it really talks to the integrated part of bed bug management here. We're really talking about uh, non-chemical treatment before we really even venture into pesticides. And I think this gives us real data into how um, how we can achieve um, efficacy with these non-chemical methods. So for the non-chemical treatment, what they did is they steamed furniture and or they used a vacuum. They put encasements on mattresses. They used eight pitfall traps, sometimes called interceptors or monitoring devices. I'm gonna call them pitfall traps for this. And then they asked the residents to wash the bedding and they provided resident education uh, with brochures, kind of telling them what they can do um, on their own to control bedbugs. And so they had this one treatment where they did all those non-chemical methods. And then the other treatment is where they did all the non-chemical methods. Plus they applied a silica dust to the baseboards and to some of the furniture with a mechanical duster. And so they ended up, they first did a building-wide inspection to determine, all right, first of all, which apartments were infested. They visually inspected the apartments, and then, of course, they selected apartments that had live bugs or signs. Uh, They also used pitfall traps to um, also get collections and count the number of bed bugs. And they selected 10 apartments for just the non-chemical and then 11 apartments for the non-chemical plus the silica gel. And they also, of course, had to get cooperation and the resident had to be willing to actually do this study, not surprisingly. And there had to be a minimum of at least 10 bed bugs but one apartment had, you know, hundreds. And they also called an infestation completely eliminated if there was no evidence visually, no bugs and pitfall traps, and the resident said no more bites or activity had been reported. So, what they did is they did this over six months. So, they would go in, do the non chemical treatment for the 10 apartments, the non chemical plus the silica for the other group of apartments for six months. They did an initial treatment and they would come back monthly if they found evidence of bed bugs and they would redo the treatments, of course, minus the encasements. But everything else was redone if they found bed bugs in those apartments. And what the researchers found is that just the non-chemical treatment alone, so no silica gel, no dust supply, it was 89% effective. So doing nothing else, 89% effective in reducing the number of bed bugs. Uh, however, with the non-chemical treatment, only 36% of the apartments completely eradicated bed bugs. But if you added silica gel, then it was 99% effective. So killed about 99% of the total number of bed bugs by just adding the extra dust application. Uh, However, they were able, out of the apartments, able to completely eradicate 40% of the bed bugs. 40% of the apartments were eradicated of bed bugs. Uh, So while they were able to really reduce those high numbers, many of the apartments still had just tiny numbers of bed bugs after the six month treatment. And not surprisingly, the reason behind that was a lot of times, which I'm sure you can guess, resident cooperation. So in one apartment, they had really complicated wicker furniture. In some apartments where they're dealing with low-income housing facilities, the furniture was really broken down, not well maintained. It was hard to steam some of the furniture and get into the cracks and crevices. So even after an initial treatment, like over 300 nymphs were still found on the furniture. Uh, So while it's super effective, we know that these IPM methods really work and we can get great reductions. Uh, The authors kind of suggest if you have really low level infestations, you may never actually need to go touch your chemicals. We can get great control. Um, But most importantly, it's always going to be client cooperation. So in a lot of times the clients didn't launder, they didn't cooperate, there was too much clutter. Um, So they felt like if they were going in maybe twice a month instead of monthly and they had better client cooperation, they could have gotten these numbers down even lower, but still saw great efficacy with just the the non-chemical and silica gel treatment. That's it.
2: That's excellent. That, that part of the, um, the non-chemical approach, they didn't talk about heat at all. Heat was not involved in that, correct?
3: No, just steam.
2: Right, okay, just the steam, yeah. You know, what's so enlightening is that I understood everything you said, Brittany.
3: That's <laughs> wonderful. That I didn't see ever, this this yeah.
2: <laughs> I've actually um, did what you were talking about. <laughs> yes, know? I
3: kept it super practical going back, there.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, very easy for me to understand, Brittany. Thank you so much. you're welcome no that's uh yeah that all it definitely all makes sense you know especially with the cooperation which is such a big part of it you know and how everybody can just relate to what you were saying on on so many levels with um participation you know and um yeah that's uh that's excellent that's excellent the pressure is on
0: Yeah, I do want to say that uh, Brittany was 30 seconds over on her time. I don't know if that factors (laughs) into.
3: Well, what about the extra intro and the malaria discussion afterwards?
0: Hey, our our charter section four, paragraph three clearly states (laughs) time does not start until after the title of the paper has been read.
3: (laughs) I'll remember that next time I'm going to do 10 minutes and I'm going to do five minutes prior to even reading the title.
0: That's right. Yeah, you got to give your backstory uh, before the title or you wait till they start asking questions and then dive into some additional explanation.
1: <laughs> you guys are pulling back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz here. This is like inside the place stuff. You're airing our dirty laundry in front of <laughs> esteemed guest.
2: I can feel the love, definitely.
1: Marillion, what, um, what is the verdict? All, right.
2: All right, well, you know, this was very challenging for me. This was tough because because uh, there's a lot of moving uh, faucets here. And do I have to give my reason or should I just say it?
0: You do not spare us the heartache of, of telling us why you think the other two are not good. We, we are very fragile. Right, We've learned very quickly we can't handle the criticism. So just don't tell us why.
2: Be- <laughs> because it, it, it's really hard because I have, uh, you know, it's strong. Across the board, but we have a new queen, Brittany.
3: <laughs> oh my gosh, that takes off so much pressure because if I did not win, I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do on the next podcast. <laughs> I was going to quit. And it, it, it
2: has nothing to do with girl power in the room right now. I have my reasons. I think I already said it, but you know, well.
0: Well deserved for sure. And uh I Absolutely. I wanna I, I don't want to speak for Jim here, but I think that for the internal sanctity of our team, it is the rate has been lifted off of us as well. I'm not sure that we would be <laughs> looking as forward to the next episode if Jim or I had won this one. Um, so it's it's good for us internally that she's got a a, a W on the board as
1: well. So thank you, Merlin. But well deserved, Brittany. Great yeah. job. Thanks. Definitely. And Marillion, the check is in the mail.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you're excellent. Now you're my new favorite, Marillion. Thank you. I need my crown. I'm going to have to go get a bug crown.
1: Yes, we got to get you a crown. Yes. Well, thank yeah. you, Marillion. Well, this I'm gonna get her... you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted.
2: No, I was going to, I'm going to get her one at Pest World when I actually see you. Oh my God. I've never been so excited
3: in my life. I can't wait. <laughs>
2: It's going to be a whole walk of everything. Yes. Oh,
3: yes. No, thank you, for, crown? you so
2: much. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me again.
1: You were awesome. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this and see uh, a little bit inside of our kind of crazy little world that we have. And, and
2: uh, I love it. We all we all need fun nowadays. So thank you for making my day too and um, making me feel comfortable. I appreciate it, and it's always a pleasure to see you guys. It's always fun. Thank you.
1: All right, Thank you, Marilyn. We'll see you. Thanks,
2: See Marlene. you later. Take care. All
1: Ooh. right. So you get a crown. That'll go nicely with your scepter and throne that you've ordered for the office.
3: I know, and you know Marilyn will keep her word. I am so excited about this crown, and I feel like I can breathe, you guys. I uh, I was really starting to feel the pressure, and I was super always again super impressed with both of your breakdowns today.
0: All right, all right. Brittany's already being a little obnoxious with her victory. Here. Little
1: condescending. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Nothing like being being a good sport, a good winner. <laughs>
3: good. Okay, I'm trying to be trying to be nice here.
1: At least if you were like a poor sport and like rubbed it in our faces because she's a poor sport. (laughs) Now you're just just nice. Now you're just nice. Um.
3: (laughs) I clearly won today. I gave the best presentation, you guys. Jokers.
0: Oh, man. All right. Well, I know that we go through these uh, sessions and these papers really quick. So Brittany where can we go if our listeners want to find out more about the articles that we're covering in each one of our sessions?
3: Oh yeah. So I'm super excited. We are launching npmapestology.com. So if you found this super interesting, you want to take a deeper dive, we... Uh, are posting articles on our podcast and other relevant entomology topics, or just basically anything related to entomology and the technical side of your business on our new blog page. So head on over to npmapestology.com if you're looking for more information.
1: All right, good. So I guess um, that's a wrap for another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites Podcast
0: be sure to subscribe to the podcast uh, if you haven't already. So you don't miss the release of another new episode and uh, otherwise we will catch you on our next episode. So thanks everybody for listening.